0: Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brett. Um, I'm privileged to work um, here at New Spring as one of the pastors. Um, Yeah, let's get into it. So we've... um, Dave's been sort of on a different sort of track the last few weeks or so, Um, but we're actually still finishing off the Down the Mountain series, so we've still got about three weeks of that to go, Um, and then next month we'll be starting a new series. So this morning we find ourselves in Matthew. Um, I've got a bit to get through, so we might as well just get cracking, eh? So we're in Matthew chapter 9. Starting at verse fourteen. Then John's disciples came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and they will fast. And then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth. ...because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the skins burst, the wine spills out and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. I want you to think this morning of a time when your perspective was completely changed... You thought a certain way based on the information that you had and then suddenly, you know, or the upbringing that you had and the perspectives that you had and then suddenly new information comes across your path and something that you thought that you were pretty solid on you're now gone. I can't believe I used to think that, and now I. And the sh- and the shift has been quite dramatic, and it used to, often happens sometimes quite quickly. I'm seeing a lot of nodded heads. Most people are on that same page. Well, this happened to me about a week ago. Um, last Friday, I was driving into the city. I had to drop off something. <laughs> um, I had to drop off an eye. Um, That's a different story. Um, And I knew that it was, yeah, you were looking at me. It's my father's in-law's only got one eye. I had to take it in to get it serviced. (laughs) That's all I got. I was a delivery boy. Um, And so, and I knew that I had a bit of a drive. So I often will listen to podcasts in the car. So I was listening to this podcast. Um, But as I've often said before, um, and most of you know that, Obviously, you know, you go to Bible college and you have to study a language and all that sort of stuff. And I studied um, Hebrew, Biblical Hebrew, when I was in um, Bible college. And I've never been shy about saying that I completely was horrible at it. And <laughs> but that's the way it is. Um, and obviously, through the course, you're reading the text, in like Hebraic text. You're looking at it, you're breaking it down. You're trying to translate it into English And trying is a really, really important word in that, but we're trying anyway. And it's important to know that this isn't a theology course. It's a language course. But what's happening is that you're reading the text, and because you're trying to delve what it actually is saying, you're also extracting meaning out of it but it's not necessarily in the correct context because you're talking about language structure. And um, obviously as the years go on when you're studying it, you start off with the easy stuff. And pretty much some of the easiest Hebrew in the Bible is the first few chapters of the book of Genesis and the first few chapters of the book of Job. And so I spent a lot of time for about six months spending a lot of time translating early Genesis passages and early Job passages. Now, it just so turns out that these passages have a lot to do with the fall and with the spiritual realm and with Satan and all that sort of stuff. And so a lot of that had actually coloured my theology on all of that stuff, on demonology and what all that sort of meant and all that stuff. And... I'm in this, listening to this podcast, and it was actually a podcast on demonology. Um, it was a Christian podcast, it's okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so the, the way that this guy was breaking it down was actually pushing against a lot of the stuff that I thought I believed was true about this topic. And he wasn't just using his opinion, but he was actually using biblical text and context which is obviously a very important thing, and by the end of you know back into Perth, into Perth, delivered off the eye, and come back, finishing the podcast, my thoughts and feelings around that topic had almost completely changed, and it was quite dramatic because it's sort of like wow, I thought I had that nailed down, and so when we're looking at a passage like we are this morning, that is potentially what happened for Matthew's audience and it might actually potentially be for us today where we think we know what we know but more information actually brings about a greater understanding and a deeper level of understanding about what Jesus is actually saying here. But before we get to us, it's important to actually look at the world in which Matthew's speaking into, or reading into, writing into. It's quite a turbulent time. So the date of writing of Matthew is actually not known. Um, scholars have it anywhere between about 45 to 50 AD to about 100 AD. Now it goes a bit later than that sometimes, um, but that's generally the bracket of when they think that it was written. And um, has my voice gone really weird? Am I? Okay, I'm, it must be some feedback I'm hearing. Um, and so, one of the things for dating, one of the most important dates when we're looking at dating scripture, especially the New Testament anyway, is 70 AD. Now, 70 AD is important because there was a revolt. Israel revolted against the Roman Empire, and the, the Romans sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. So often when they're looking at the languaging of the New Testament text, they're either saying, well, does it refer to that? Because if it refers to the sacking of Jerusalem, then they know that it's post-70 AD. And if it doesn't really mention it, they think, well, maybe it might be before that, because that was a significant time. Because as we know about the temple, it is the place where God dwelt. It was the central hub of Jewish life. And so for them to have that destroyed was an extremely significant thing. And so they don't know the majority view. Although, Matthew, there's not a lot of language around the destruction of the temple. The majority view is that it's post-AD70. But there's good argument for that it's pre. So they don't know. But the importance of that is if Matthew is writing in that bracket... He is riding in a very turbulent time because the the nation of Israel is either leading up to a revolt or they are in post-revolt and everything has been destroyed. So there's lots of questions being asked by the people, by Matthew's Jewish Christian audience. And those questions can be like the basic question of what it means to be Jewish, What is this new religion that claims Messiah has come and gone in this man Jesus? Who are the real children of God? What does all of that mean? What are these questions about identity that we're asking? How do we find the answers to those things? And so this is the audience that Matthew is now writing into. So when we get to the passage that we have here today... The original readers, like I said, were Jewish Christians would have been struck quite profoundly by the language that Jesus uses here. He's he's contrasting between the old and the new, between the unshrunk cloth and old garments that don't go together, between new wine and old wineskins that if you put them together, both will be destroyed. This language is quite provocative, especially when you're looking at a people who are questioning the very identity of who they are and what that all means with God. So let's draw out some of the symbolism of this passage. So the new wine is the newness of the gospel personified in Jesus. It's the good news that Jesus is demonstrating in his time. The old wineskins are the established behavioural and ethical patterns of conduct, which for the Jews represented the righteousness of Torah. Okay, so the old law. And the new wineskin, or sorry, the new wine is too dynamic to be contained in the traditional frameworks of obedience. You're starting to get the economy there? Don't worry, we're we're only five minutes in. (laughs) You need to remember though, because our first world Western brains tell us new and old, we think Old is Old Testament, old is Jews, old is that, and new is New Testament, new is Christian. This is not the economy of the gospel at all. Okay? So we need to be careful of that, that just because Jesus has come, that everything old is now to be done away with. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Because he does say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, that is in the Beatitudes, that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So he is not doing away with the law, but ushering in a new reality where the the law is perfected through the person of Jesus. It's a very different economy than just doing away with it. Now, like I said, you're going to remember Matthew's audience of Jewish Christians had lived their entire lives under the old wineskin. That was their complete frame of reference for their entire lives. And everything that they know needs to shift. And it's not because it's wrong, but it's because they now have more information. When Jesus says in verse 17, um, so no, they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. There are some people who like to think that what he's talking about that both are preserved is that Christians and Jews and both are preserved. But he's actually not saying that. I know that there are people who um, look at Israel and say that it's everything about them. And when the, the Israel comes to God, then Jesus will come back. There's a whole theology movement around that and a belief movement around that. When Jesus is talking about the old and the new and that both were preserved, he's actually talking about the gospel, which is the good news of Christ, and the law, which is the new ethical teachings of Jesus. He's redefining everything here. And the new wine is the reality of the kingdom of heaven that has been ushered in by Jesus and the new wineskin is the faithful obedience to the law but this faithful obedience to the law is based on Jesus not on the old wineskins of Jewish obedience Do I need to say? Oh, I'm going to say it a different way now, i would racked my brains to try and come up with a relatable example of this. And I'm not sure I've hit the nail on the head with this one, but we're going for it anyway. It's like when you become... A, this is what's happening to the Jewish Christian authors. And this is potentially what happens to us when we become new Christians. It's like when you become a parent for the first time. Now, there are enough parents in here that might understand this, and I'm sure that everyone who hasn't had a kid will be able to grasp the concept. So before you have your first child, life's great. (laughs) (laughs) You, (laughs) You have freedom. You do what you want. You spend your money on what you want. You go where you want. You stay up late and out late like an adult. You sleep in like a lazy person. It's great. I mean, I still sleep in, but that's a different story. (laughs) And then one day, you're innocently walking home from work. And you go to your front door, and your wife is standing there in the front door, shaking like a leaf with something in her hand. And you go, what's that? (laughs) And she goes, it's a pregnancy test and it's positive. (laughs) And I don't know, that's my experience. (laughs) And you get through that holy crap, what are we gonna do moment. And then one of you eventually says to each other, one of you, in blissful ignorance, don't worry. It'll all be okay. Our lives aren't going to change that much. We're still going to be the same people that we were before. We're going to still stay out late and still hang out with our friends. And we're still going to do all the things that we do. We're going to have this cool baby that sleeps when we want it to. It's going to be like a handbag and we can just bring it and it's going to be fine. Yeah? One parent always says that. And then baby comes And you realise that the old wineskin does not contain the new wine anymore. They do not go together. The lens through which you see your world has now completely altered. And every frame of reference that you thought about was reality, now is not anymore. This is what is happening here when Jesus is talking to the people who he was around but then what Matthew is then writing to his audience. The old is not adequate enough now for the new reality of what I'm telling you about. He's revealed something new. How you relate to your world, to God, to each other, how you see yourself. None of that can be contained in the old way of thinking of Torah. New wine, new wineskin. And in his book, uh, Power in Weakness, Timothy Gombas Um, describes of the Apostle Paul's ministry before and after his conversion. He writes this. Paul's aims were nearly the same before his encounter with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus as they were afterwards. Prior to his conversion, Paul was vigorously engaged in attempting to bring about resurrection life for God's people on earth. He was trying to move God to save Israel ejecting the Romans from the land and initiating God's kingdom. This is how the Pharisees would have understood resurrection. God fulfilling his promises to Israel, liberating them from their oppressors, pouring out the fullness of his restorative work on creation and setting up his rule on earth with Israel prominently situated at the centre of God's reign. Before his encounter with Christ then, Paul was consumed with the resurrection. He certainly underwent dramatic changes after his transformation on the way to Damascus, but his agenda had always been orientated by resurrection. Paul's later apostolic commission involved founding and growing communities of resurrection life through the Mediterranean. It is just that for Paul, the manner in which this would be brought about was dramatically different. Gombas, the author, then goes on to write about how Paul, his ministry went from an, an agenda of, that was shaped by personal prestige, by power, by tribal commitments, by the use of coercive violence, to a ministry that was shaped by cruciformity, a, show, a life shaped by the cross, by weakness, by shame, by his identity as a sinner. Everything that Paul knew about his reality on the road to Damascus shifted because his reality shifted. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes about this new identity. That once we were dead, but with Christ, God made us alive and that those in Christ are now no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no hostility between them. But through the blood of Christ, we have been made into a new man or a new human. And that new human is called a Christian. And it is a Christian that results in peace. This is where God's peace lies. And together, Christians together, we grow into a holy temple in the Lord, a place where God's spirit dwells. So when you became a Christian, you just now don't have a life that looked exactly the same as what it used to, and now you just sprinkle Jesus on it. You now live a life that is only able to be contained by a new wineskin because you are not the same person. This passage in verse 14, it introduces us to a third group of people in this this chapter that express disapproval for Jesus' ministry. The scribes, so in chapter 9, verse 3, we're introduced to the scribes who accuse Jesus of blaspheming because he tells a paralytic his sins are forgiven. The Pharisees, in verse 11, were upset That Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And now John's disciples were questioning why Jesus' disciples don't fast as often as they do. The things that Jesus is doing and saying do not align with what they understand proper conduct to be. Their reference is old wineskins. And Jesus' way doesn't fit into that framework anymore. So it's important to know what this new wineskin is, I think. This new pattern of ethical behaviour based on the teachings of Christ. So if the new wine is the gospel, the good news of Jesus' salvific plan for humanity, what is this new wineskin that's dynamic enough to contain it, or better yet, to facilitate it? And the new wineskin that Jesus is talking about is the new righteousness that he's proclaiming in the Sermon on the Mount. So another obvious then question is, well, what is righteousness? And what does that look like through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Now, i had always assumed, often, that righteousness only referred to me. Not me only, but me in general. And to my right standing before God. Righteousness, I had been taught, is a combination of moral purity and personal holiness. And I'd always thought that my righteousness was only between me and God. That it was a vertical relationship or exchange. I thought that when in the Beatitudes Jesus says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled, meant that I was to desire right relationship with God, to be accepted in God's sight. To crave moral purity and personal holiness. And that to be filled was to receive personal salvation and to have the sinlessness of Christ credited to me through faith. Now, that's not wrong. That is true. But it is not the full picture of what Jesus is talking about when he says personal righteousness or talks about righteousness. In the Greek, the words that they can translate as righteousness can also be translated as justice. And when you start to unpack justice, it becomes clearly, clear early on that justice has less to do with this vertical relationship with God and more to do with a horizontal relationship with one another. Now, of course, there's overlap, and there's a vertical component that's very important because if you don't have the vertical component, you can't have the horizontal. But often, our relationships with each other are eclipsed by our relationship with God. We make that the only thing And it's a very important thing. It is the primary thing. It is the foundational thing. But if there's no horizontal outworking in relationship, then you are missing the point. And this is where we can begin to look at the central themes of Matthew's gospel and in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And then look at how that informs us as Jesus' disciples and how we are being a part of the new one. So firstly, for Matthew, Jesus ra- right, uh, je- sorry, justice and righteousness is a central attribute of God um, of who God is and how God acts. And in Matthew 6:33, Jesus calls his disciples to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness above all earthly needs. And in Matthew chapter 20, verse four, in a parallel about how our God, um, about, about the kingdom of heaven, God is like a landowner who pays his vineyard workers whatever he is right. There is righteousness at the centre of God's character. For Matthew, justice and righteousness is a concept within, uh, with, the, with origins in God's. Very character. And Matthew attributes this same justice and righteousness to Jesus' identity and ministry. Jesus' entire ministry exhibits the righteousness of God. So the Sermon on the Mount. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, Jesus' blessing is on those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And it is in fact a blessing on those who suffer persecution on his account. Jesus blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we are called as disciples of Jesus for a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, if we are talking about a vertical relationship, that makes absolutely no sense. But if we are talking about a horizontal relationship, then a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees absolutely makes sense because we're talking about relational stuff here and not just holiness before the Lord because the Pharisees and the scribes in the ancient world, were the holiest. So it's now where we get into what the new wine is and why it needs new wineskins. And Jesus illustrates this new wine and wineskin in vivid and wide-ranging terms. On the one hand, righteousness in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, is the collective term for almsgiving, prayer and fasting. But this justice and righteousness in Matthew chapter 25 verse 31 also feeds the hungry, it gives drink to the thirsty, it welcomes strangers, it clothes the naked, it attends the sick and it visits the imprisoned. And back to... So the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, 48, tells us that justice and righteousness fulfills the law in extraordinary ways by forbidding anger, lust, divorce, oaths, and by calling Jesus' followers to not only resist the evildoer, but instead to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them. So what is Matthew telling his readers here through the words and actions of Jesus? Now, this has been taught by myself and others a few times over the past year or two, but I'll mention it again. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it tells us that when Jesus begins to preach, he preaches this, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. In Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has come into our midst. And because of this, the old way of relating to God and the systems and behaviour of obedience, the old wineskins, are not dynamic enough now to contain this new revelation that Jesus is revealing. This is the character of God. Justice and righteousness. Righteousness. And if we believe, I'm about, sorry guys, I'm about finished. And if we believe Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, and if we believe that the Sermon on the Mount is at the very centre of our transformative heart, and that transformed heart comes about by hungering and thirsting for righteousness, by seeking it first this is the new wine skin that Jesus the new wine that Jesus is revealing now i think it's safe to say that for us most of us here i wouldn't be arrogant enough to say all of us here but most of us here myself included need to be reminded that Jesus has ushered in something that is way more dynamic than we realise. And that when we become followers of Christ, like I said before, it is not enough for us to simply keep living our lives and to sprinkle Jesus into corners of it. We need to put away the old. And one of the things that it's easy to do is for us to go, oh, well, that's the old, this is the new. We're automatically okay because we say that Jesus is Lord. And we go on living our lives. We go on having anxiety and all the stuff that the world tells us how we're supposed to behave and respond. But... The response and the reaction to a transformed life in Christ is not one filled with anxiety, but it's one filled with peace. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that. And so I might actually do something that I hadn't actually planned to do. If you are not a follower of Christ or if you are a follower of Christ and you feel that you haven't or don't understand the transformative power of of a resurrected life in Christ. The guys are going to play. There'll be people here to pray. Feel free to come down and we'll pray for you. And there's no one that's fine. But if there's a shift in your heart and a spirit to say, you know what, there's something that you're talking about, Brett, that I do not understand in the reality of my world, even though I've been following Jesus for five minutes or 50 years. Because I do not understand what it means to have the restorative beauty of a life that is subjected to the Lordship of Christ. And you want that. And you see people around you going, you've got something and I don't have it and I want to know what it is. Come down and have, and have prayer. Because a life that is the same as what it was before that just has Jesus sprinkled on it is not the life you're called to as a Christian and following Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reality of your truth. Heavenly Father, as your spirit moves through this building this morning, I pray that you convict those hearts in this room, Lord, that... You are more than enough, but you are something or someone that needs to be pursued. Heavenly Father, I pray that you soften our hearts to your your reality. I pray that you open our ears and open our minds to who you are. And Father, as we go about this day and this week, that even if there's no response now, Lord, I pray that those people who are moved by the reality of who you are I pray that you continue to speak to them and to work on them. Father, we thank you that you are a God who continually calls us back into relationship. And Father, we confess our sin that we don't put you at the top of every list that we have, that we don't pursue you with our whole heart at all times. And Father, I also pray forgiveness that we don't pursue justice in those around us, that we don't pursue relationship that is restorative. That is honoring. Pray in Jesus' name.